And welcome to She Thinks a Podcast, where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, Zainab Zebkan joins us to discuss Muslim Women's Day and why it's important to not group Muslim women into one progressive mold, but instead see them as a diverse group of women who've given much to society. She'll also discuss her fight against female genital mutilation, also known as FGM, and share the stories of the women she is helping. Finally, she'll share her own story and discuss her work at the Muslim Muslim American Leadership Alliance. Before we bring her on, a little bit more about Zainab. Zainab Zebkan is chair and co-founder of the Muslim American Leadership Alliance. Born in the U.S. to Pakistani Afghan immigrants, she became an activist after eye-opening experiences, counseling survivors of domestic violence and organizing exhibitions for artists facing repression. A former senior clinician holding a master's degree in clinical psychology, Zainab has served as as a United Nations delegate on the Commission of the Status of Women since 2013, and also serves as an advisory impact board of director for Picture Motion. Finally, she is the recipient of the prestigious 2020 Silver Stevie Award for Women in Business and the nonprofit government sector. Zainab, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much, Beverly, for having me, for including my voice, and for all the wonderful work that Independent Women's Forum does. So I really appreciate being a part of this conversation. Well, we're so thankful for your time and filling us in on the work that you're doing. And I thought we would just start, before we get into some of the specifics of your work, get into your background. And I gave a little bit of your bio explaining your parents and your work here. But can you take, help us think through this? How did you get to the work that you are today? What about your background led you to that? Sure. No, that's a wonderful question. I think that's where it always begins. Um, I'm a... Uh, child of immigrants. I was born in a small, um, well, it's not really small, a suburb in Chicago called Schaumburg, Illinois. My father was from Afghanistan. My mother was Indo-Pakistani. Um, they both immigrated. Uh, my father came around the late 50s and my mother's family came to the U.S. around the mid-70s um, and settled in the Chicagoland region. And so for me, growing up, um, I grew up with an American identity, obviously, but also as a Muslim. And so navigating the world with a name like Zainab, um, you know, I've seen the ups and downs of, of, of things. And I also realized, you know, how important it is for me to value my Muslim heritage, but at the same time celebrate being American. Um, you know, growing up, 4th of July was the biggest um, holiday that my father observed over any other holiday. So, you know, I think for people that come from closed societies, uh, the values of America, democracy, freedom, what it really means... Um, of course, has changed over time, but for us, it was instilled um, that we don't take freedom for granted. And I think something you said there is really key, and it's still celebrating your culture and your heritage while seeing yourself as an American, which you are. And I think we have in society almost a desire to only focus on what makes us different. Do you think that we should have a greater focus on what makes us the same and our American background and what being an American means? Oh, absolutely. That's a, that's an excellent question, Beverly. And honestly, I think America is one of the best countries to be a Muslim, even better than in the Middle East, because you still have so much 
segregation, discrimination, prejudice is even amongst within the Muslim groups. Um, here in America, you can have fluid dual identities. Um, and the core thing is that we're American. I think that's what we tend to overlook, especially when it comes to minority groups, because we want to, or the media wants to label us as just a particular minority group, and that's it. We're really, we're Americans first. And one of those aspects where I think you're put into that monolithic group is purely based on religion, just thinking that religion is the only defining aspect of who you are and people who are Muslim. You talk a lot about the melting pot aspect of Muslims. Can you just expand on that um, for us? When you talk about Muslims being much more than that, and I think on the surface we can all agree, but what does that mean for you? That's so important that you bring this up, Everly, because here's the thing. You know, Muslim Americans are the largest demographic in the United States. And this is meaning racial, economic, socioeconomic status, um, whether they're first generation, fourth generation, how they identify politically, um, their um, status, their post-secondary education status is one of the highest. So, you know, the... The demographics is by far the largest variant um, in the in the U.S. However, we're tended to we you know we tend to be clumped into one monolithic identity, and I think sharing the stories is really important for Muslim Americans because this is where Mala has come into place. So that we've been the first organization to archive nationally archive these oral histories into the National Library of Congress. So 20, 30, 40 years down the line, you can look back and say, okay, what was it like for Syrian Americans or for Afghan Americans? Or what was it like for this particular group or this group? You'll see that there's a variation of personal experiences. And unfortunately, what the media captures is one narrative, which is victimhood, which is oppression, which is about failures and um you know, challenges that immigrants or minorities face rather than the opportunities and the advancement and the actual incredible work that we do as part of an Americans, as part of this community. And so with your group, you, MALA, Muslim American Leadership Alliance, you share a lot of their stories. What would you say even for Muslim women coming from a variety of countries to America, some born, some immigrating, what would be a common thread of their success that they have and a common thread that they may have when it comes to opportunities leading to a better life? Absolutely. And that's just such a wonderful question, too. Listen, I am very well connected with some of the most powerful, impactful Muslim women in our society, in American society, many women that are physicians. Um, The Iranian community, for example, is one of the most thriving and highly educated and, um, you know, economically uh, advanced in our nation. And that's because they're coming here with you know, coming with the concept of knowing that they can have opportunities and resources to succeed, not based on the gender that they are born. Um, I think it's very important that we discuss, you know, not the challenges that Muslim women face, you know, it's beyond the hijab controversy at this point. This is about recognizing and looking at 
what our community has done, what we're able to do, whether you're Orthodox, whether you're secular Muslim, the beauty is that in America we're a pluralistic society and we all have the equal opportunity to advance and thrive and succeed. You know, granted, there are going to be certain challenges that all of us may face because of our um, you know, because of our given backgrounds. However, here in the United States, we do get to overcome that and we do get access to opportunities and resources that weren't there before. And you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to expand upon, and that was just saying that your your name, Zainab, I even had to ask you how to pronounce it as we jumped in this conversation because I wanted to make <laughs> sure I did it correctly. What has it been like to have a name where people identify it as being from another country? So how was that for you growing up in school? What kind of challenges have you faced? And do you see it almost as as a positive that you have a name that's unique, that stands out in a good way? And, and what has that been like for you? It's, it's, you know, it's great. And there's even times, even within the uh, Muslim, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, common name and it's also uh, you know pronounced differently in certain regions so in Turkey when I go there it's Zeynep um, Arabic way is Zeynep um, Persian way is Zeynep and uh, Pakistani Indo culture is Zeynep so you know there's different ways to pronounce it but however for me it's just it's a part of my identity it is who I am um, I've had my name you know been made fun of by kids, school-age kids. But the interesting thing is that I'm a mother. I have a three-year-old toddler, and I named him Jehan, which is a Persian name. It was my father's name. It means the universe. It's also a Turkish name. So that's something that, you know, I want to continue doing is just keeping my heritage um, with pride, looking at it with pride that I'm able to be an American um, navigating around, you know, with a name like Zainab, and that's totally fine. I don't have to switch it around. I don't have to be anybody else. I can be Zainab Khan and still be successful and, um, you know, amazing at what I do without changing my name. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And we wanted to bring you on, too, to talk a little bit about Muslim Women's Day. This is a day that has not been around for very long. I believe it was 2017 when it was first declared that there would be a Muslim Women's Day. Why is this day important, and and what aspect of it do you think that it brings to the forefront? Why do we focus on this day? Well, I, you know, I did have to do some research on that. Um, I think it was, it's like a self-proclaimed day by a blogger. It's not really nationally recognized or observed um, on a national level. Um, that's something Mala has actually been working on, is looking at Muslim American heritage as an observance um, so that we can spotlight the contribution of Americans of Muslim heritage through the United States um, from its founding through the present. Now, I think it's very important for Muslim women to have a day that's great. Um, Jewish women should have, you know, if they have a day that's wonderful, Christian women also. Um, but I want to kind of, I'm a little curious about what the significance is. Is it to talk about um, the successes or is it to talk about the challenges? Is it to talk about the opportunities that Muslim women have had um, coming from different societies? I'm, I'm not really particularly familiar with that. Um, but I do have to say that I think as Muslim women, we definitely have to, uh, you know, show that there's unity amongst us, but that there's also differences. You know, that's one of the things that I think is very important. 
not all Muslim women, um, you know, are uh, wear a hijab or are orthodox or are secular. There we come in a variety of different ways and how we believe. And I think even politically, um, when we look at elected officials, uh, there are many Muslim women that have been elected into Congress, um, into national uh, or local uh, levels which is wonderful, but we still need diversity in thought. We need to include Muslim women who may be uh, center-right. We have to include Muslim women that are Republicans. Um, this is very important because if we're going to say that we are not a monolith, we have to show unity in showing that there is difference in thought amongst us as well. Absolutely. And and I want to focus just on the political angle that you mentioned right there because I know that you have been working speaking out on FGM, which is female genital mutilation. I know that there has been states that have been looking at legislation, even the federal government. What has been your work and your involvement within this? Oh, that's a wonderful question. And this goes back to my therapy days. So um, prior to launching MALA, I was working in private practice and uh, group practice where I was getting a lot of clients that were from Muslim-majority countries. And at that time, it was, I think, because of my name, the familiarity of my name, um, that would bring a lot of these you know, female clients to me. And then that's when I learned about FGM, female genital mutilation. And I realized that this is not domestic violence. This is not just post-traumatic stress disorder. This is like a major, major issue that was happening within the community. And it was very taboo to talk about even seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, so fast forward then, you know, I think we've come a long way in being able to talk about this issue, but we still have a lot of responsibility within the community to discuss it. Um, in 2017 alone, I believe Mala had uh, three or four separate incidences, all separate, where uh, people were calling because they were either at risk or had wanted to report of a young girl or a woman at risk um, of getting FGM done here in the United States. And so we've been very involved in not just sharing the stories of survivors, but creating advocacy around it. And we've been a part of the End FGM Network. Um, we have a wonderful relationship with survivors and being able to plug them in into panels and plug them in into projects. Um, I recently came across one MALA a fellow survivor who's now starting her own nonprofit, so on FGM in America. Um, so this is, you know, it's it's a wonderful way for us to start bringing awareness to the table, but we're still at over 200,000 women and girls at risk just here in the United States alone um, at risk of undergoing FGM. And I think that number is so surprising to people. I think even the topic of FGM, it's it's surprising to people that this takes place in the United States. What is your perspective on what state legislations should do, legislators? Do you think there should be state laws that completely ban this? I know states have worked on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that case in Michigan with the Bora community, that was just shocking, I think, for human rights organizations, women's rights organizations, where the physicians, um, not just people, they were physicians, you know, they took a Hippocratic oath, practicing in the United States, practicing medicine in the United States, uh, they performed this 
Um, now, if you're following the case, they were accused of performing this in their home to over hundreds of girls, hundreds of young girls that were coming through those doors and had this horrific, horrific, um, you know, atrocity done to them. So, yeah, I absolutely believe that there should be changes on both a state and federal level on female genital mutilation. And regardless of where you are, this should not even be a political issue. This should be hands down. This is one of the worst violations um, they could ever do against a human. And I just think it's almost nonsensical to debate it. It should be outlawed. It should be banned. It should be criminalized. Um, It's criminalized, you know quote-unquote, by the UN, but still it happens. You know, we have to actually put the law into action. And if we're allowing the perpetrators to go to be let free here in the U.S., what kind of an example are we giving? Absolutely. And and I think it should be a, a non-political issue. People on all sides of the aisle should agree that this practice should be criminalized. And I wanted to just ask you about the women that you've worked with who have been brave and have spoken up, this has happened to them and want to use their own story to bring awareness to this issue. How do many of them overcome what's happened to them and still live productive lives? Or is that a hard thing for women who to do who've been victimized in this way? Well, I always say, um, you know, I would always tell my patients and my clients, um, you are not defined by what happened to you. Um, and to be honest, Beverly, I've had, you know, even in the capacity of where I'm, I'm an executive director for MALA and a board member for other organizations, I've, I've worked with survivors, even on a, you know, one-on-one where it's taken them years to come forward to share their story, um, because we have to be, you know, very cognizant of post-traumatic stress anxiety, the flashbacks, um, which are psychological. The psychological damage is, you know, there's no um, time limit on that. It's just you learn uh, different ways to cope and you get stronger by creating a network of support by sharing your story So, and finding and creating a purpose around what happened to you. And I think that's something that a lot of women um, survivors that I have worked with have used that as a tool to help love, you know, use their voice as a platform to initiate change so that it doesn't happen to the next generation of women and girls. Um, but it's a process. It's not, you know, it's not something that you wake up overnight and all of a sudden you're ready to share your story. Um, and many times I've also seen, um, you know, I don't want to name any um, organizations or groups, but even in the media, when they talk about FGM, they just use the story, the person's story, and then it's like, okay, done, bye. And then it's like, you know, they kind of feel left in the dark, and they're like, well, I just opened up something that took me five years, six years, seven years, ten years of therapy to talk about. What am I going to do next? So I've seen, I've come across that quite a bit when it comes to survivors as well. And I think that's why it's it's amazing the work that you're doing and, and working with them and bringing their stories to the table and helping them even beyond that. And my final question to you ties together some of the things that you talked about throughout this podcast today, which is victimhood. And it, it seems that you're very passionate either with 
working with your patients or the way that you just view this as a whole, that people seeing themselves as victims doesn't help them in the long run. Is, is that the case? And is that something that you do work with in the clients that you do um, counsel and help them process horrible atrocities that yeah, they've gone through? It's a very disempowering um, it's very disempowering. And I will say that even personally, I've been interviewed, I've been asked to be interviewed once by CNN, and it was like a constant barrage of, okay, well, what do you think about the Trump administration doing X, Y, Z? And I'm like, but this is about me, isn't it? This is about me as an empowered Muslim woman. Why are we bringing in your political agenda on this issue? Why do you keep victimizing me? Why do you keep putting me in a box? And that's something I've really fought tooth and nail, um, Quite a bit, you know, and I think that that's, you know, yes, we all have challenges, yet at the same time, when we just go off of this victimhood narrative, it's just so disempowering, it's so negative, and it just does not show the real power of, of leadership and incredible philanthropy and, you know, amazing, uh, you know, triumphs that people have overcome in our community. So that's why I am. I am against the victimhood narrative because I myself don't see myself as a victim. And we don't see you as a victim either. We appreciate your voice. We appreciate you coming on today. And I want to let people know once again, the name of the organization is Muslim American Leadership Alliance. Go check it out. You could Google it, find it online. But we so appreciate you joining us today. Zainab Zebkan, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. And last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. Also, we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.